News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it possible these days to have an argument with someone that doesn't just devolve into outright anger and frustration? I mean, is it possible to have a constructive argument? And is there such a thing? Well, there used to be, but it seems to me we have lost that skill these days. And it is a skill to be able to discuss an issue with someone and make persuasive arguments that can potentially convince that person of something that perhaps they didn't realize or know before. Our next guest knows all about that. It's Bosso, a two-time world champion debater, former coach of the Australian national debating team and author of Good Arguments. Bo, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell me, when did you become such a good debater? How did it happen? Uh, oh, it happened slowly. <laughs> I, uh, I started when I moved to Australia. I moved when I was eight, and I didn't speak English at the time. And I was having trouble adjusting to a new language, adjusting to a setting where I was pretty visibly different, the only Korean kid um, in a school full of mostly um, Anglo-Australians. And I joined the debating team because they promised me that when you debate, when one person speaks, no one else interrupts. And it was that promise of silence that drew me in. So I started when I was about 10 years old, and by 16, I had started representing my state, 17, my country, um, and then throughout my 20s, I debated for Harvard. Um, so there's no clear point where you think you've made it, but um, <laughs> it was that feeling of getting better that, um, that that kept me engaged. So but when you look around today and you see how difficult it is to have these difficult conversations and discussions with people, what's happened to us? What do you think? I think there's not one answer to the question, but the part that I'm most interested in is that that we've stopped thinking about disagreements as a skill and a craft. We think about it as just a state of things or an event that visits upon us rather than something we're empowered to do something about. And it's true that there's lots to despair at um, in the world, but the tradition that I'm coming from that I'm trying to draw attention to still is a feature of the world, which is there will be across schools in Canada this week, um, students getting together to respectfully disagree. And they're going to do that, not just so they can beat the other side, but because win or lose in that conversation, they're going to get out something they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, um, you know, there's lots to despair about, but a culture of argument and the skills of argument should be some of our greatest cultural achievements. And I think it's a matter of reviving those. Yeah, what do we gain from it? If we can learn to respectfully disagree and revive that art, what do we gain? So much. Um, one is you learn about the world beyond your narrow perspective. You develop a deeper relationship with the person across from you because when we focus only on agreement, you're kind of treading on a tightrope, right? Not uh, willing to venture into the territories in which you might not share very much with the other person. Um, And for me personally, it was about finding a voice. It was very easy for me as an immigrant to agree with everything that was happening around me or to nod my head, to wear a distant smile. Um, The part that took not only courage, I'm not sure I had much of that as a kid, but the part that took skill um, and instruction was being able to talk about the ways in which I was different with others. Um, It's in that that I think you can achieve a fullness of voice, a fullness of relationships, um, and can inch towards a fuller perspective on the world as well. So where do we start then? But I think this is an admirable trait that we should have. We should be able to do this. But where should we start? 
you have to start with listening. Um, and it's an important feature of at least how I think about debating that in order to be heard, you have to first listen. Um, and there are even here some skills that people can adopt. So one that I would suggest is called side switch in debating, where after you've kind of figured out what it is that you think about something, you take a minute, you turn to a different sheet of paper, or you take a beat, and you try and come up with the best argument for the other side. Or you think back to what you've prepared, what you've thought about, what you've convinced yourself of, and try and poke as many holes in it as you can, as if you were listening from the perspective of someone who really disagrees with you. So that kind of unsettling of your certainty, of your ego, of letting in a different perspective, um, that's a form of listening, I think, and, and, and it's the start of a lot of good discussions. Is that how you win? Is that what you do? That's the secret? <laughs> Um, sometimes, though I, I lost a bunch as well, um, <laughs> it, it certainly uh, allows both sides to walk away from a dispute thinking they would do that again. And as long as that's the case, the conversation continues, the relationship continues. And I do think listening, in addition to any competitive advantage, allowed me to say that about the discussion. So when you see the broader things that are going on in society today, do you think that's what we could all do is a little more listening, like just almost playing devil's advocate? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, what is um, echo chambers, if not a, a kind of a design or an architecture to block out those views that, we may be uncomfortable with. I see it as a kind of reach for psychological safety to be surrounded by people who um, are of our stripe, who wear our jersey. Um, but taking a moment to hear the other perspective, even before disagreeing with it. I mean, even though I've written a book about debate, I don't want to say that's the only way in which we should disagree, or even that disagreement is always the right way to respond to difference. Sometimes it should begin with a period of just sharing or understanding or observing or spending time together that may give rise to an occasion where disagreements might flourish. Great advice this morning. I hope uh, we all take some of it. Bo, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It's Bo So, a two-time world champion debater, former coach of the Australian national debating team and author of the book Good Arguments. It takes both sides, though, to kind of play by those rules. You know what I mean? Like, you may feel like, I would love to do this, but the other person you're talking to also has to understand that we're going to do this constructively. We're not going to be so blind to everything else that's going on out there. I feel like we all could use that right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The new guy got a little bit of an education the other day about how seriously we take our food discussions around here. And yes, I'm talking about Scott Shantz. Good morning, Scott. Hi, good morning. All right. So you love pie. Sure. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good pie? Agreed, but we all have very strong thoughts on great pie. Yeah, and I uh, I came to realize this really quickly last <laughs> week when I mentioned, I don't know how it came up, we were talking about desserts or somebody had brought in some baked goods or something, and pie came up, and of course I uh, mentioned my favorite pie place in North Vancouver, where I live, Savory Island Pie Company. Good pie. Legendary. Good Lined pie. up, they sell out, the pie's there, everybody in North Van, or if you're going somewhere, you're bringing up host gift. It's usually a Savory Island pie, and for good reason, they're delicious. Right. I don't believe that you didn't put it quite like that, though, Scott. Your belief was this is the greatest pie in Metro Vancouver, is what you told us. I think I said something like that. The best pie in the Lower Mainland is Savory Island. Right. And then we all turned around and looked at you and said, Savory Island's good, but there's other great pie out there, too. And, and of course, with something we like that. We might not have said it that politely, but yeah, that's you, pretty <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's exactly specifically how you said it, but that, that, uh, what, like it does in an office setting kicked off the debate that sort of went on for, you know, probably longer than it should have, which has led to today being pie day. Yes. So today is pie day at work. So we all have brought a pie 
from our favorite pie places to so we can all independently judge and verify what we believe to be great pie. Yeah, I'm surprised at how many pies are already here at 6.22 in the morning. Right. There's so a lot of pies. What did you bring? I brought a uh, lemon buttermilk with berries from Savory Island. And quick story, because I need to, I need to shout them out. So I did my research on Friday about the pie did. that I was going to get. And when you Google Savory Island Pie Company, it comes up as like in-store takeout and delivery. And I was like, perfect. I'll order it on Saturday and have it delivered on Sunday, have it here on Monday. And I couldn't find the delivery option, so I Googled Savory Island Pie Delivery, which took me to a page where I put in an order for delivery. And then the next morning, Sunday morning, I got an email from the owner saying, oh, that page is still active by mistake. We don't deliver anymore. To which I said, oh, no, I'm out of town for the weekend. And there's, I was going to have my mother-in-law get the pie at home. You're going to deliver it to her. And they said, well, we don't really do it. And I said, is there, do you use a delivery service? Is there anyone I could contact? And the owner personally made my pie and delivered it on his Wait own. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you tell the owner what you were doing? I, absolutely not. I will show you the you emails. Lie, Scott. I'll show you the emails. I'll show you the emails and the texts. He just, I just said, it's for work. It's for some people at work, and I just, I want to- And they don't know what you do for a living? 100%. I swear, I swear they don't. I said I would write a Google review on, and I was like, this is amazing so service. Them. But after the fact, <laughs> after the fact, Simi, it's incredible. Because I, okay, I didn't get home I until will, like 8 o'clock. We have the pie here, and it's a miracle. I will acknowledge that's pretty phenomenal. I know, right? That's amazing I'm impressed, service. Very impressed. Yeah. I and have, it's delicious I pie. have no doubt <laughs> that Janelle Parsons would do the same if I asked her. My choice that I brought in today, I brought the raspberry cream pie from the pie hole. Love the pie hole. Love Janelle. Known her a very long time. Everything is great from the pie hole. Uh, I was hoping to bring in the peach bellini pie, but that, that was all sold out. Like that thing is crazy, yeah. crazy at this time of year. So I brought the classic. This is the one that Guy Fieri ate on Diners, right. Drive-Ins and Dives. Yes. And she said that these people come from like Idaho. They come from all over to eat this pie. Pie is a serious thing. And what I love about it, it's like you can create these wonderful concoctions like lemon buttermilk or raspberry cream or peach bellini in a pie. I'm so excited for today. Okay. And so we also have with us today, which we also, a lot of us feel is just the most amazing pies in the lower mainland is Gabby and Jules. Okay. A lot of people will say, oh yeah, that's true. That's such great pie. It is. They have two locations. Uh, they have one in Port Moody, which is the main one and one in Burnaby. You can never go wrong with anything at Gabby and Jules, but to I believe we have their lemon meringue pie. Oh, amazing. And so then when I was doing some research on this, I thought, well, is there a place that we're missing? I came across a place on Powell Street called the Pie Shop. Okay. Which also a lot of people said this place is phenomenal. So I also went down there yesterday for today. I haven't tried it yet, but I brought the roasted apricot almond ricotta pie. Oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. We're going to try that too. So we're going to try this. It's pie day. I believe Jill Bennett's later. She's bringing in a key lime pie. Oh, I don't I know where from, lime. so that's great. So we're going to have a great day, but we also would love to hear from people on the best pie out there. We had a very spirited argument slash discussion about it, but we've agreed to share each other's pies and... Scott tells a great story. Shout out to Savory Island for totally. making it happen for him. But where is the best pie in Metro Vancouver? Tell us so you can join in on this discussion. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we're going to talk to Bob Palmer in just a moment, but I want to thank everybody who has already emailed us with some pie suggestions and thoughts. It turns out these kinds of workplace contests Pretty common, I think, for a lot of people. So thank you to Teresa. Teresa said that she did this once at work, but what they did was they actually um, made their own pies. Teresa, we're not that ambitious here. We we thought, you know what, we'll just buy pies from somewhere and we'll see how it goes. But Teresa said they all made their own pies and the winner was the traditional apple pie. And she said the key to that is warming it up. I think that's excellent advice because you can't go wrong with warm pie. So we'll keep you posted on the whole pie discussion today. But right now we're going to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Morning, Simi. Okay, so we're talking about the museum, the Royal BC Museum, again. So what's going on? Yeah, well, you know, the provincial government would just really like us to never mention museum again until after the election because they've had so much controversy with it. But uh, this week is marked down on the government's calendar for turning it around on the provincial museum. The much-lamented old town in the museum is scheduled to reopen 
19 months after it was closed and targeted for demolition in the name of decolonizing the museum. So it is back, set for reopening on the 29th, so that's Saturday. And we've got a new acting CEO at the museum, uh, Tracy Drake, and she takes over. There's a hunt on for a new CEO, and I'm expecting the tourism minister, Lana Popham, who's credited with uh, saving Old Town, will be there for the official reopening on Saturday. It's not quite Old Town, as we remember here in the capital, but they say there'll be enough of it there uh, that it will show people that it's back. Okay, this is such an interesting journey that this whole yeah. exhibit has been on because it really was when Lennon Popham came in, she just said, no, we're doing this. Yes, she did. And uh, you'll be able to uh, sit in the train station and see the train arriving again, which was a favorite with kids. I mean, it was the hokiest special effect you could imagine. It was just the sound of a train and lights, but kids loved it. And one of the things that they told us early, oh, it's gone, it's gone. And Popham goes into the museum when she takes over as tourism minister and goes through and somebody says, uh, <clears throat> Minister, come into the back room here. And they show her, it's still there. Like, it's incredible that the old town is still there. Um, oh, okay, but parts of it I, I, I'm won't sorry, be ready. I mean the train station. Right. Are you going to be able to smell the apple pie? The print shop is going to be there. So, oh, and Chinatown, which is probably the most authentic historical exhibit in the museum because it was designed by the Chinese Canadian community here in Victoria. That'll be there. So it's worth seeing just that because it really is quite astonishingly authentic. Uh, What won't be there? Uh, Some of the exhibits are being used as storage space right now. Uh, Captain Cook's ship Discovery, they want to bring that back, but uh, may take a while to clear out all the stuff that's been stored there. So it's not a complete old town. It has a new name, Simi. Oh. It is Old Town, the new approach. So this is a signal to everybody else who's waiting for the museum makeover that they're still planning to modernize the museum and make a new museum one of these days. Okay, so yeah, what is that process like now? You said there's an acting CEO in place? Yeah, the acting CEO is in place. Uh, name is Tracy Drake. She was a vice president at the museum, so she's been around for everything that's unfolded. And she says, you know, they're still rethinking the museum, still planning to modernize it, but taking their time. They had a round of consultations with British Columbians earlier this year. There'll be another round of consultations with interested groups and the public in the fall. Uh, She says uh, eventually a plan will go back to the cabinet about uh, what the re-envisioned, remade museum will look like. She says, quote, we're definitely not at that stage yet. And believe you me, the political people in the government don't want to hear from her <laughs> or the museum or the public before the next election. Probably not. But we should also point out here, Vaughn, though, this is something museums do, right? Yes. Periodically, things do need to be updated. We learn new things. Attitudes yep. change. Museums do makeovers all the time. Sure. And there will be signs and signs of that happening. I think all of that is legit. And the other thing you see, Simi, and I follow this thing all around the world, some of my favorite museums that I visited in the past and I'm planning to go to again, a lot of museums and art galleries, public uh, historical stuff are being rethought around the world. The the consensus, if ever there was one, about what should be in museums and what they should say uh, is breaking down. There's a greater diversity of opinions out there, and to some degree all of this can be a minefield for controversy. They discovered that here in B.C. The, the term decolonize the museum provoked an enormous backlash. They don't use that term here anymore. Instead, what they say, they want to be more inclusive and recognize the history of the indigenous people of British Columbia, as well as the Europeans who arrived later. We're going to talk a little more with Vaughn Palmer this morning, and this time it's about the nuance of language, which, as we're always learning, is so important, Vaughn. And this one, I guess you try to do the right thing, but you're not quite sure what words to use. Yeah, and this one was an eye-opener to me that 
the controversy that's sprung up around this issue, but the bit of background of three or four days before the election in 2020, the New Democrats promised, uh, if they were re-elected, which they were, to build a new museum devoted to South Asian heritage, history, and culture. And I, that's the sort of thing you do with the best of intentions. It was endorsed by uh, South Asians who were running for the NDP, some of whom now find themselves at the cabinet table. And uh, they began a process, a consultation on the plan. Uh, Earlier this year, there was a meeting at the Wask Center in Vancouver on the 13th of April. Lana Popham's the tourism minister. And she's walked into another minefield of controversy. And it is, starts with a question of what is a South Asian? It's been pointed out by some people, critics, that it's really a grab bag term, a term of convenience, mm-hmm. not a term used within the community itself. And people point out very different heritage within that community. Uh, there are people uh, who much more identify as Sikh Punjabi. Uh, you think of all the different terms that have been used to describe that community over the years that have changed. We used to say Indo-Canadians. Uh, and, of course, if you're going to do the history and culture of a very diverse people with a very contentious history and a different one and a, a greatly varied culture, um, you're getting into a lot of controversy. And, you know, there was a good piece in the paper in the Sun on the weekend by Denise Ryan, museum promise gets snagged over term of South Asian. There's a magazine, uh, online magazine, Rung, uh, that uh, uh, did a piece on that forum in April on the controversy. But I think what you're seeing is just that the government went into this with the best of intentions, but without Simi, a clear definition of what is a South Asian and what their intentions for the museum are. So are they going to be diving into that a little bit more? Can they be more specific with the language? Well, I think they got the message. And they got the message in that question that has been posed, which is, what is a South Asian? And, you know, if you ask people in the community, or maybe better to say if you ask people in those communities that we use that term for, you're going to hear a very, very difference of opinion and vision. And if you ask British Columbians who aren't in those communities, uh, of course, you're going to get a different thing too. So I think the the the, the Sun, uh, Denise Ryan, for the piece that was in the Sun on Saturday, asked the tourism ministry for a response, and they got back. Uh, Popham wasn't available. She's still dealing with the provincial museum. Uh, So she wasn't available, but they got back a statement that basically says, look, the government is proceeding very slowly on this. They are consulting the communities, plural, about what they would like to see in this museum. We're three years into that promise, Simi. I would say you're not likely to hear all that much. Maybe, maybe it'll be an announcement in the next election. But I think the first thing that really came through on this is the government jumped at that term as a term of convenience, and we use it. I use it in the news media all the time with the best of intentions. But it is a landmine of controversy for those communities that don't generally accept being identified as a single community when, in fact, they are a very, very diverse community. Well, South Asia is a very big place with a lot oh, of different countries. Yeah. And I think that's a complicated yeah, It's a huge part people. of our history in British yeah. Columbia. I mean, the, the idea of having a museum devoted to this history and culture and, and the interest that all of us would have in seeing such a thing uh, with the best of intentions, but I think they're going to have to stop and proceed slowly. And the first thing they need to do is to come up with a definition of what exactly they're looking at. Well, also what this tells me, Vaughn, is that if they do this properly and tell all these stories, the museum's going to be a fascinating place. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the model may be the big um, what's the, the big museum the Canadian government built in in uh, Winnipeg, and it, I mean it, it's looking at is that the Human Rights races. Museum. Yeah, human rights. And they ran into the same problem in the beginning because of all the groups that said, well, what about the trampling of our human rights? And it took some time to put together 
a museum there with federal money that was diverse and represented all those issues. So it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, it's it just is gonna possible take a little time. to do, but you really got to take it easy, and yeah. you definitely can't fast track your definition nope. uh, of diverse communities. I would manage, take the politics out of it and do it properly, do it nice and slow, and it's going to be a great, great museum for all of us. Uh, thank yep. you so much, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. It's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. Uh, lots, as always, to talk about, but as he mentioned, the exhibit, the Old Town Reimagined Exhibit, is going to be kicking off uh, this weekend if you would like to check that out in Victoria. I'm sure it'll be very popular. This is Mornings with Simi. 184 people. That is how many died in BC in the month of June due to the toxic drug supply. That's according to the latest numbers from the BC Coroner's Service, which came out late last week. This year, the total number so far is more than 1,200 people. And it does feel like no matter what we do or what we try, the numbers just keep climbing. Now, the chief coroner in this province blames illicit fentanyl as the main culprit and that it's affecting cities big and small right across the province. It's the reason why we're even experimenting with a safe drug supply. And that was very controversial when the discussions first started trying to bring in that system. And there were some places around the world that kind of BC looked to for examples. One of the places was in Oregon, where they have also been doing this, having a safe, regulated drug supply, doing it for a few years now. So ahead of BC, for sure. But is it everything it is supposed to be? Is it really achieving the goals that we are trying to achieve? And that is cutting down on those overdose numbers, using this as a way of harm reduction. Does it actually work? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Jim Hinch, which is, uh, Jim's a journalist on drug policy and social issues featured in the Atlantic magazine. Jim, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks. So I know you've been looking into Oregon. So what is it like there in Oregon? What do they do? Uh, what Oregon did is uh, in late 2020, they adopted a ballot measure that um, removed uh, criminal penalties from possession of small personal amounts of uh, all drugs. Uh, so people who are uh, uh, caught uh, possessing drugs um, are not uh, arrested and taken to jail. Instead, they're issued a $100 ticket, similar to getting a traffic ticket, and they can get the fine waived by calling a uh, toll-free number and getting some counseling, maybe a referral to local uh, treatment programs. Um, and then they also uh, diverted a great of, uh, cannabis tax money toward uh, funding uh, a, a kind of more comprehensive statewide network of uh, treatment, housing, and uh, other services for people who use drugs. Okay, now that all sounds ideal. It's obviously goals that BC would like to have here as well. But the question that we have, Jim, is like when you look into it, does it work? Is it making a difference? I think the answer in Oregon is that so far it's not. But I think also at the same time, a lot of people are saying it might be a little too soon to tell in Oregon. And that's for two reasons. One, there was the confounding factor of the pandemic, which kind of... uh, through a wrench into everything. Um, and also there were acknowledged flaws in how the measure was uh, rolled out, especially in how uh, funds were uh, distributed to treatment and housing programs and so forth. Um, some of those flaws now are being corrected. There was new legislation uh, passed just earlier this year that strengthened state uh, oversight of funding and um, it was an effort to streamline getting that money uh, out to uh, treatment programs and so forth. Um, and so I think supporters of the law are saying, uh, check back in in a year, in a couple of years, and we might be seeing that we're having a more positive uh, result. But so far, the results have not been encouraging in uh, Oregon, which has uh, recorded one of the sharpest rises in overdose rates uh, in the United States over the last uh, year and a half to two years. Now, the other part of that is also that, you know, if you get one of those tickets, you can get it waived, as, as you said, if you call a number and and then you can go to treatment. But what happens if people don't pay the ticket and they don't call the number? Like, is there any follow-up? 
I think that's sort of another acknowledged uh, flaw with the measure is that the short answer to that question is uh, no, there isn't. Um, Many police agencies in the state really have not made it a high priority to issue the tickets because they feel like there's no uh, point to it. They already feel stretched um, in their uh, resources and they just don't think that's a good use of their time to issue tickets that they know that the drug users probably are not going to pay a lot of attention to um, and that they know there's really not going to be any kind of uh, further consequence for not uh, paying the fine. In fact, I think the implementing legislation for Measure uh, 110, which is the ballot measure that uh, decriminalized drugs in Oregon, the implementing legislation specifically prohibited courts from imposing a penalty if somebody who gets a ticket does not show up in court to contest uh, the fine. So, no, I think there's an emerging consensus, maybe, that some kind of enforcement mechanism needs to be beefed up, uh, maybe not uh, criminal penalties, but that, there, but that the state maybe needs to come up with some way to encourage drug users to seek treatment, to make it easier for them to find local uh, treatment resources, and for there to be some kind of system to make sure that they do and follow up. Now, Jim, what do you get a sense of when it comes to the public's patience for this? Do they feel like, okay, we'll still wait it out for another couple of years, or is patients running thinner? It's a little bit difficult uh, to tell. Certainly, the poll results, public opinion seems to be shifting. Um, I think as recently as the middle of last year, um, a poll was done. Now, this was a poll that was done by an organization that I think is broadly in support of the goals of Measure 110. So it might not be considered an entirely uh, nonpartisan poll. But nevertheless, um, it found that public support for Measure 110 uh, remained pretty high. But then earlier this year, um, a poll was done by a nonpartisan uh, polling organization, which really found that public opinion had shifted quite uh, far. I think um, a bare majority of Oregon voters now, I believe the wording in the poll was, thinks that Measure 110, quote, was a mistake. Um, And um, an even larger majority, you know, somewhere like uh, 60% of voters or so believe that Measure 110 has made problems, has made uh, drug problems in the state worse, made uh, crime problems in the state worse, and has made um, the problem of homelessness in the state worse. Now, obviously, those are voters' impressions. That's not to say that the measure is actually doing those things, but that is what voters are telling um, uh, poll takers that uh, they are seeing and thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, w- so I would say, at least according to that poll, yes, public opinion is swinging. Obviously, um, I talked to a lot of people for the story that I uh, reported, and um, I encountered a wide range of views. There certainly are people in Oregon who um, remain strongly supportive of Measure 110. I think broadly in the state, people are uncomfortable with the idea of imposing harsh criminal penalties on people who use drugs. Um, they very much want a treatment-centered uh, focus to work, but they're not sure if the mechanisms that were, uh, I guess, uh, enacted in Measure 110 are currently working. And they're thinking that maybe something needs to change, but they're not quite sure what yet. Oh, I think we can sympathize with that in BC. Jim, thanks for your time. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I'm one of those people who, if you tell me, come to my house for dinner anytime after seven, I'm going to be there at seven. I'm just one of those people. I apologize in advance for that. Uh, But we're talking this morning about time blindness. And I'm going to tell Scott Chance right now, I don't believe this is a thing. Yeah. And I had my questions uh, as well. So I needed to dig into it. But the reason people are talking about this, the internet's kind of in a bit of an uproar over the last week is because a young woman on TikTok applied for a job and questioned whether or not they would accommodate the fact that she had time blindness. Okay, is this real? Is this person real? Yeah, oh yeah, she's absolutely real. I'm not going to share her name, but people have discovered her. Her name is out there. Here's just a little short clip of her recording herself after the interview. So I'm applying to go somewhere, and I just wanted to know, are there accommodations for people who struggle with time blindness and being on time? And then the person I was with interrupted and acted like I was asking something else, and then when we were done... They actually started yelling at me and saying that accommodations for time blindness doesn't exist. And if you struggle with being on time, you'll never be able to get a job. 
So she's, yeah. she's being very <laughs> serious about this. But what, what the suggestion here is, Simi, and many psychologists and medical professionals are weighing in on this right now. And some are, are definitely saying that this is a real thing. They're not going so far as to say it's a diagnosable medical condition, but it is something that definitely exists. Time blindness exists. Some people struggle with it more than others, and we need to talk about it. So I, I don't get, I'm not, I'm not. He's just responding to the look <laughs> on my face right now. It might exist. It might be a real thing, but that doesn't mean that it needs, employers need to accommodate this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have, you know, sounded off uh, to this young woman saying, you know, mainly negative saying that like these well, why employers would I hire are right. you if yes. I can't rely on you there is an implicit contract there now Simi I think that as much as is possible we should try to understand each other and make allowances and acceptance for each other but like for example one person asked her well if the employer is supposed to pay you on the 15th and the 30th and they say oh I have time blindness so I'm going to pay exactly. you on the 17th right that's unacceptable exactly exactly but all, I basically I needed to find out more about this, you know, because the hot debate, people on the internet, some are saying it is, some are saying it isn't. So I talked to Dr. Michael Manos. He is a, a pediatrician at the Center for Pediatric Behavioral Health at Cleveland Clinic, and he's done a lot of research into this. And of course, I started by just straight up asking him, what even is time blindness? Time blindness is the sense that people are unaware of the time it takes for something to occur or are unaware of how much time they are taking when they're actively engaged in an activity. This feels like something that has probably existed for a long, long time. Is this something that we all experience, or is there actually uh, like a diagnosable difference between people who struggle with time blindness and those of us who just aren't very good at time management? People have always gotten fascinated by something and lost track of time. So... It's always been there. Okay. And do you feel like we're seeing it, um, is it more common now or more prevalent than it used to be? Well, of course, that's very hard to say because I don't know of anybody who has measured how it used to be or who has even measured how much it occurs right now. But it occurs ubiquitously. It is something that everybody experiences from time to time. Okay, interesting. And is there a way for us to tune into the fact that we're experiencing it, or is it something that you don't realize until after the fact? Well, if you're blind to something, you don't see it. It is something that you're only, you only um, recognize after the fact. Now, do you think that perhaps this is a symptom of preoccupation with cell phones and social media and screen time, that type of thing? Cell phones and social media and screen time certainly contribute to a level of fascination. These things are not the cause of time blindness, but they certainly allow the opportunity for time blindness to be expressed. What is the cause of time blindness? Is that something you can put your finger on? So when you consider that the brain has two distinct kinds of attention, one kind of attention is called automatic attention, and automatic attention is what people are engaged with when they are doing something that is interesting or fascinating to them. There is a second kind of attention, which we call directed attention. Directed attention is modulated by language. So, for example, if you have to go to the store and get milk, eggs, and butter, <clears throat> then you say to yourself, I have to get milk, eggs, and butter. And so when you walk in the store, you say again, milk, eggs, and butter, you go get it, and then the task is done. Directed attention is more effortful. So directed attention is what you use when you're doing something that is not necessarily engaging, but has to be done anyway, like going to the store, like doing taxes. Much of schoolwork is that kind of task. It's, it's a task that just has to get done. Automatic attention engages fascinating uh, activity. When you are engaged with directed attention, you are aware of the time something is taking to do. When you're engaged with automatic attention, that languaged awareness is not present for you. Time seems to fly by because you are so engaged. 
Should we be making a lot more allowances for people who this is more prevalent for, or do you think this is something that uh, it's possible for us to get ahead of with um, some preparation and some focus? How do we manage time blindness? I mean, most people want to be so engaged with something that time just seems to fly by. Okay. Most people are looking for those kinds of activities. I mean, doing something that's very engaging, engaging in a hobby or listening to beautiful music or talking with a friend, all of these things are things that human beings enjoy. Is it necessary to, to manage those things that human beings actually seek them out? Are we going to be so stuck to the task at hand that we don't enjoy looking at a beautiful picture in an art museum. Now, the thing that is important is that people be responsible for their accountabilities and that people do what they said they were going to do. And sometimes I think the concern here is that when people get so engaged that time goes by and they miss an appointment, for example, well, that is an action that uh, tends to disrupt the daily activity. Dr. Michael Manos from the Cleveland Clinic talking about time blindness. So in summation, yes, it's real, but we all have it and it's existed for forever. So just uh, show up on time, okay? This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this was news that hit people like a shock that the RCMP have arrested and charged a retired former RCMP officer with foreign interference on behalf of China. So what do we know about this case so far? Well, we're going to turn to an expert on this, of course. Michelle Gino-Katsuya joins us, former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS and author of Nest of Spies. Michelle, thank you for being back with us. Always a pleasure. Good morning. Michelle, did this news surprise you when you heard it? Well, it's surprised in the sense that it's 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 unfortunate it come from our ranks. Uh, somebody who has been trained by the OCMP, trained by our national security uh, agencies, and 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 basically offered his services uh, allegedly to uh, a foreign uh, government in a foreign intelligence service. Um, it, but it is not totally a surprise because we see that through times that uh, people who have this kind of expertise, this kind of reach, this kind of uh, uh, network, uh, find themselves selling their uh, services to the better offer. What do we know about this case so far? Well, what we know is that the RCMP started to investigate in the fall 2021 uh, this particular gentleman. Uh, his name came to their attention that he might have been providing information to uh, the uh, Chinese intelligence services and the Chinese government. Um, it take a long time to sort of accumulate the information to demonstrate uh, that his, his, his pattern, his modus operandi, and uh, eventually the <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. He charges. <laughs> it happens. He charges uh, to uh, for uh, helping a foreign country and for conspiracy. Okay, these are very, very serious charges, especially given everything that you know has happened here in Canada over the last year. How long was this investigation going on? Do we know? Well, it was uh, like I said, fall two thousand twenty-one. The investigation, but. Some uh, some sources are saying that they might he might have come on the radar starting as soon as 2019. So um, nobody has confirmed that CSIS was involved with the investigation, uh, but definitely the RCMP uh, uh, took the lead uh, as it is supposed to do. Uh, we have to remember that CSIS doesn't have any uh, law enforcement power, not at all. No power of arrest, no power of laying charges or anything of that nature. When we discover that something is uh, illegal or of criminal uh, perspective, we need to transfer the, the information to the RCMP. What is interesting to see also is that these, the unit is the unit coming from out of Montreal that investigated that particular uh, individuals. Uh, and that particular unit has been making history uh, in the last 12 months quite repeatedly. Uh, you might remember they're the one who arrested the Chinese uh, person from uh, um, 
uh, Hydro Quebec, who has been stealing information and now been accused and, and, and has to answer his action in front of the court. Uh, they arrested also and laid charges against somebody who wanted to uh, throw uh, overthrow the government in Haiti. Uh, they also arrested uh, far-right extremists uh, shortly, uh, not a long time ago, in Ottawa. So it's really interesting because this unit has now found probably the right uh, our crown prosecutor, because that was one of the problems that we had for a long period of time. We didn't have crown prosecutor, crown prosecutor that had enough backbone to go after those guys. Now it seems that we are creating maybe potentially some jurisprudence that will help us. But it brings us again the the, the issue of foreign interference back in our face. Uh, we, you and I, we talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal government is dragging its feet. Uh, we're losing trust of. Uh, our citizens, we're losing trust in our leaders, we're, and our allies are also sort of wondering, what the hell are we doing? So we need the opposition and we need the uh, government in power to sort of sit and be serious about taking uh, measures, because here's the evidence against. We have now laid charges against a guy to, uh, for uh, foreign interference. So when, now that this case is making headlines you know, right across the country, Michelle, is this, do you think, will this get things moving? I know we've been had a bit of a log jam when it comes to figuring out the parameters of this public inquiry, but does this case tell us we do need to talk about this publicly? It definitely reinforced the fact that we do need to talk about it. Um, there were over 350 uh, uh, witnesses that testified in front of four parliamentary committee and they all came to say this has been going on for the last 40 years and now recently the Canadian press just released a, a, an article saying that they obtained through access of information a report that was written back in 1986 uh, where CSIS was warning the government about the Chinese foreign interference uh, so for close to 40 years we've been dragging our feet about this issue and and we know that unfortunately every single prime minister has been compromised they either neglected, ignored, or simply used the information to their advantage. So, so they, they are part of the problem. They're not part of the solution as we speak. So we definitely need now to sort of address the issue seriously, um, give ourselves the uh, uh, legal framework so the law enforcement can investigate properly, because that's one of the problems that we are currently facing. We don't necessarily have the uh, legal system and the law to be capable to click uh, to, to, to apply on such case. All right, Michelle, thank you for your time again. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. That is Michelle Junoketsi, former chief of Asia Pacific at CSIS, author of the book Nest of Spies, talking about this latest case, which is so shocking when you hear about it, even when you see the headline on this, that a former retired RCMP officer has been charged with foreign interference on behalf of China. And uh, there's still a lot more to come on that case, and we will be following it. This is Mornings with Simi. Obviously, Lions dealt up another great win over the weekend, 19-9 over Saskatchewan. But a little bit of a dark cloud there. We're going to get into that this morning with Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Morning, coach. Good morning. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So let me ask right off the bat, how's Vernon Adams? Well, it looks like we avoided a serious injury, which is good. So um, we haven't determined whether he's playing this week, but we're going to do that in the next couple of days. So um, it's going to be a short-term thing, which is which is good news. And so we, we expect him back as soon as this week, but for sure in, the, in a week or two probably. Okay, how relieved were you when you heard that? Yeah, it's it's big. You never know with knees. Yeah. He hurt his knee. So, um, you know, that can be anywhere from a season-ending thing to you just don't know. Um, but uh, he, he came in here yesterday and was, was feeling uh, feeling much better than expected and avoided any serious stuff. So that's uh, good news for him and good news for the Lions. It certainly is. Okay, but Dane Evans did pretty well coming in for Vernon Adams. Yeah, that's why we signed him. He's a really good player. And when we had the chance to, to get him to trade for him, that's exactly why you do it. And in, in a football season, it, it almost always takes at least two quarterbacks to get it done. So good on him. It's hard to be the backup quarterback. You don't get a lot of reps in practice. So for him to step in and and uh, and give us a chance to win, which he did, is uh, good on him. Okay, so we'll wait for more news about Vernon Adams this week. It was a great game. Is there things that you think we should have been doing better? 
Yeah, well, both defenses played really well. I know our offense was a little bit frustrated. They wanted to play better. But uh, the important thing is is uh, we got a win, and it was against a Western team. Um, as, as you know, you always hear me talk about beating the Western do, team. Yes. So that was uh, that's big. We beat all four of them now, which is a big thing. And we got another one coming up against uh, Edmonton. So there's lots of stuff to improve on. I always say that's good news, bad news, is that you know the bad news is we're not playing our best, but the good news is we can win and still get better. So we'll be, uh, we'll be working on that. Okay, so Saturday visit to the Edmonton Elks. Now the Elks are 0-7, but that also, that's a bit of a double-edged sword though, isn't it? Because you just don't know when they're going to yeah. burst that. Yeah, we got to not get caught up in that. They um, they're they're better than their record. So they played Winnipeg last week, which Winnipeg's a, a a very good team in this league, and they played them really tough. So we need to get out of the business of worrying about that they're own seven and just expect to to be in a tough game and find a way to go win a game on the road. All right. Well, listen. Best of luck, and thanks so much for the update this morning. All right. All right, thanks. Have a good one. You too. That's Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. I was a little worried hearing that Vernon Adams was injured in that game, but sounds like he's going to be okay on the faster side rather than the slow side, which is great considering the season so far. Knockwood that the BC Lions are having, right? And that is Coach Rick Campbell. We talk to him every Monday morning at this time. This is Mornings with Simi. Groceries are expensive. I think we all know that right about now. Also, though, where you live helps to determine just how much money you are paying. The BC Centre for Disease Control actually conducted a really extensive report on food prices in the various regions of British Columbia. And that included the North Shore, Coast Garibaldi region. That includes like the Sea to Sky Corridor, Sunshine Coast, and some North Coast communities as well. So they tracked the cost of about 61 what they call minimally processed but commonly eaten food items. So this would include things like vegetables and fruits and proteins, grains, oils and fats, the basics when it comes to eating, right? And they looked at the prices at 245 stores in all of those regions. Here's what they found. You want to know what is the most expensive neighborhood? Well, I hate to break it to you people over on the North Shore, but that is the most expensive one. They said for a family of four in the North Shore region, the estimated monthly cost of healthy groceries, $1,379. That is more than $100 higher than the provincial average. Now, it was more expensive in places like Prince Rupert, Haida Gwaii, Kitimat. You can understand that, right? A little bit farther away. But in Metro Vancouver, North Shore was definitely the highest. And the report actually suggests that if you cross one of the North Shore bridges, go to Vancouver or even cheaper, head to Surrey or Delta, you'll get a lower grocery bill for those same grocery items. Average monthly cost of about $1,287 a month in Surrey, $1,194 a month in Delta. Uh, That is a couple of hundred dollars difference from just buying those same grocery items on the North Shore. Now, does that surprise you? Because that's incredibly challenging for families out there. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Rick Bertello, who's a professor of food and resource economics at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Simi, for having me. Does that surprise you when you hear about that kind of difference, depending on where you live? Actually, those kinds of regional differences are not so uncommon. Um, it was a little bit more than, than you might expect, but um, know that those kinds of regional differences are true not only across the regions like within BC, but across provinces in Canada. Okay, what do we chalk that up to? I mean, the idea that if you cross the bridge, you'll get cheaper groceries. What's the excuse for that? Well, you know, there's different costs in different parts of the city. Um, you know, rents are, are different. Um, and, and then you've got the question of um, are, how willing are people to move? Um, how willing are they to travel across the bridge? And, you know, it's, it uses your time and, 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 and gasoline and so on. And, and so um, maybe some of the stores realize that their uh, patrons um, – Um, won't move so readily and it allows them a little more scope for raising price. Aha. Okay. That's interesting. You're saying that what you've got over on the North Shore perhaps is a bit of a trapped audience. (laughs) That seems that might be the case. Okay. So what can people do? Like, is it, do we, is it really incumbent upon us to like shop more widely then? 
Well, that certainly is a, an option. As you know, there's lots of differences by brand names versus generic products and, and things being on sale. And even now, of course, it's getting back where people are looking at um, coupons and like um, discounts, including online discounts. So that's another option. But I mean, there's no question that everybody is really being hit by um, the, the really substantial increases in food prices that are of a sort we haven't seen for a long time. And do you think that is still continuing then? I know it's been a couple of years where it feels like every time you go to the grocery store, things are more expensive or whatever you're buying is getting smaller. Uh, is that still going on? Yes, yes. You know, um, we've, we've been tracking this quite closely. And, um, and you know, inflation overall has started to come down really quite, um, quite nicely. So, you know, it peaked, I guess, about a year ago at 8%. And now the, the overall inflation rate in Canada is down to about 3%, just less. Um, and, and yet in food, um, it, it didn't peak until, until probably about the turn of the year. And, and yet it was rising well above that peak of the, of the overall price index. So inflation in food has been running at uh, up to 10, 10.5%. And all it's fallen is, is down to 8%. So it's been very sticky and the inflation has been very sticky and food prices coming down. And that's that's what's the surprise. Now, when you look at that, what do you attribute that those high prices to? Well, uh, the first thing I, I would note is, uh, you know, a lot of our inflation, um, th- this general phenomenon of having food prices go up by more than fl- inflation um, overall is, is seen in the U.S. And, and Europe and the U.K. It's not just a Canadian phenomenon. But, but what's happened in the U.S., their inflation went higher than ours but has fallen similarly to ours. But their food prices, at least recently, have started to come down. So, um, so it, you know, our, our supply chains include the U.S. And so up until recently, at least, I think, we have to recognize that this is a, um, a worldwide phenomenon. And, um, but wage rates and, and labor costs seem to be particularly important in, in these food prices be coming down so much more slowly. And do you see it starting to come down or is there still no end in sight? Um, it's starting to come down. It's, I mean, it, this might, might sound like small news, but in Canada, Food prices have come down in the last six months from about a 10% per year rate um, down to eight. And, and we, our inflation tends to lag that of the U.S. And theirs has, has now come down to around five or 6%. So, um, and it, it might be that we see that coming um, around the corner that ours will start to more closely reflect U.S. food price inflation. Okay, so in the meantime, then, we need to shop around. So if you live on the North Shore, time to maybe take a longer drive to get some groceries. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one option for sure. All right, we'll try that. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Appreciate Thank that. You. Dr. Rick Barrichello, who's a professor of food and resource economics at the University of British Columbia. We were talking about this report done by the BC Centre for Disease Control. They examined food prices at 245 stores in you know, different parts of the province and a lot of them in Metro Vancouver to determine like where are the most expensive healthy groceries. They looked at 61 different items. These were minimally processed, but commonly eaten food items like vegetables, fruits, proteins, grains, oils, fats, that kind of thing. And what they found is that if you live on the North Shore, you are a captive audience. You are paying more. The monthly average cost of those healthy groceries on the North Shore, $1,379. Cross a bridge, take a drive, go to Delta to buy those same groceries, same groceries, $1,194. That's almost a $200 difference. That's a big deal. So yeah, you can imagine being a little frustrated by that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Today we are going to learn about the fascinating history of Crawford Lake. Why is it so fascinating? Well, that's what I'm going to ask our guest, actually. Dr. Soren Brothers is with us, Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto. Thanks for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so where is Crawford Lake? It is about an hour's drive west of Toronto, so it's near Milton, Ontario. Okay, and what is so fascinating about it? So it's a special lake. Um, It's perched at the top of this cliff, the Niagara Escarpment, Uh, and because of this kind of limestone catchment, it has a really deep um, shape compared to being relatively small lake, so it doesn't really ever mix. It never mixes to the bottom, and that creates these really beautiful kind of annual layerings that are almost like tree rings where you can see each year that of accumulated sediment on the bottom. And that gives just a really good count of history of what's happened to that lake um, for its whole history. So what has Crawford Lake told us about its history? It, well, that um, annual layering that's v- visual actually begins in the 1200s with farming by uh, Atawadaran or Prewendat. Um, villages that were just adjacent to the lake. So there was farming of, uh, of corn and sunflowers there. And that already changed the ecosystem at that point where it started having more nutrients coming in and bringing uh, Canada geese to the lake and things like that. And then since then, we can kind of <clears throat> trace forward this whole history of even colonization in the land. You can see a really major change when the Crawford family moved here. And then you move forward to even seeing traces in terms of how we interact with the lake today and the uh, building of a visitor center and, uh, and some archaeological work that's been done around there. So it just has a really nice, it's a local history, it's a global history, um, also capturing elements, for instance, of uh, cesium plutonium from nuclear weapons testing, and then that drops down with the signing of the Non-Proliferation Treaty in the, in the 60s. Wait, but you could see so, yeah. all of that in the lake? Yep. So that's all. All those histories are contained in these one uh, in the single sediment cores from the lake. Okay. So how old is the lake? How many eras does it go back? So the the lake itself, you could go back about ten thousand years. Um, I mean, just since the last glaciation around here. But again, that the kind of visual um, section of this lake, where you can kind of see this history, is really going back to about the twelve hundreds when you had that indigenous farming at the lake. So you can, and that's what most of the studies that have been done have really focused on these past, uh, this past millennium, really. Okay, and how important is it? I understand that you're using a core of sediment from Crawford Lake that will make a big difference moving forward in the future. What's going on? Yeah, so, well, the, it was selected basically as what's called the, the Golden Spike candidate of the Anthropocene. So there was a large international search for what would be the best place on the planet to tell us about humanity's impact on the environment, basically, an impact on the planet as a global, um, as a global thing that people really, you know, imagine people, geologists looking a million years in the future could look back on and say, this is the start of a new epoch that humans have defined. So Crawford Lake was chosen as being, as having basically the best um, story that really tells that and the strongest evidence for it. Um, so that's where it's, become now in the news as this really kind of interesting case um, of global significance. Um, But I think part of it, I mean, there's lots of these, um, you know, for instance, one of the main things that that they look at for that um, potential designating a new epoch is plutonium because it's a global signal. So you can see that anywhere around the world. Um, And there are other lakes that were considered as, as top candidates that also had really good records of that. I think what really pulled Crawford Lake as the top spike candidate for this was, I think partially at least, this kind of human history that it had as well that was a local story that talked about, um, you know, colonialism and indigenous land use and all these other things as well. It's so interesting though when you talk about the type of lake this is, you said like the bottom layer of the water does not mix with the upper layer. So how rare is this? It's... um, you know, I couldn't tell you what percentage of lakes. It's definitely not the only lake that has this condition. Um, there's different kinds of, I'm, I'm a lake scientist. So, I mean, I've, I've worked in other lakes around the world um, that rarely or never mix. I, I think another element of what was appealing for Crawford Lake is that it is just, it's very close to Toronto. There's, um, you know, it's, we have the Royal Ontario Museum. So I'm the curator of climate change at the ROM here as well. And so I have uh, lake sediment cores um, as part of the collection here. And so we're able to find ways to really kind of engage people in the public with the story, with the history of the lake, um, 
you know, versus having something that's, you know, at a remote area where a lot of people can't really engage with that story as easily or go visit the lake. So there's that element as well, where I think there's, um, you know, there's, it's not the only lake that's called Merrimictic that doesn't mix, um, but it was a bunch of things that came together. I mean, also, for instance, I think one of the candidates that was being considered as a golden spike was uh, Antarctic ice core. And people realized that, you know, we think of those as being really great records of, of global impacts and global change. But if you were to pick the 1950s as the start of the Anthropocene, you're only looking, you know, a few centimeters down in ice, and that might melt in the, in the next few decades with warming. Um, so this is something where people, again, can go in 100 years from now, and they can take a sediment core, and they can see immediately where that 1950s start was. Um, so there's a lot of things that we're going for it outside of, you know, just the uh, the fact that it didn't mix is kind of the starting point of what made it a really good right. candidate. You, so I understand that there's going to be this official kind of starting point for a new geologic chapter. Why are we marking that now? What is happening that we think, okay, this is going to be a new geologic chapter? Well, it's been the conversation that's been happening for a long time. So at the museum, I work with uh, people in the humanities, for instance, and artists who you know, the Anthropocene is old news for them. They've been talking about the Anthropocene for years, and to them it almost doesn't matter if geologists decide to, to make it a formal thing or not. Um, and I think that there is this kind of debate where, you know, for the geologists to really say we're in a new epoch, um, you know, I, I think it's really, it's the highest bar of evidence that we can say that we have really done things that are um, irreversible, and again, you know, if you're saying that you're going to see this as a new epoch and change a million years from now, that means that, you know, what we've done um, can't necessarily be reverted immediately. If we stop doing, that's one of the questions that's coming in where people are even deciding whether we want to formalize this as a new epoch. There's something kind of pessimistic at the core in saying that the changes we've done are irreversible. The planetary systems have totally altered um, and if we even stop what we're doing, if we were just to disappear today, this would still you know, be a new epoch on the planet millions of years, possibly into the future, at least hundreds of thousands of years, um, which is usually how long epochs last. And so you're really looking at this kind of shift of what, is, what has our impact been? And um, part of that conversation then is deciding when do we really want to start that point? When did we have it? And Apparently, there's also legal implications that could come from actually designating a new epoch right. and, for instance, holding certain corporations accountable for potentially ending the Holocene and starting a new epoch. So it's pretty momentous to think that this lake in Canada could be the place that may, helps to make it all happen. Right. So it's the next vote would be on whether to actually decide to, ha- to recognize an Anthropocene epoch. Um, but apparently every single geological transition in history, um, it has a golden spike associated with it, a place in the world that best shows that in the different layers from one period to another. And so this would be the golden spike then. And this is just kind of the package of saying this is the best place to show that. Um, and for a bunch of reasons, basically. It could be right here. Listen, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the call. So interesting, right? Dr. Soren Brothers, Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto, talking about the history-making Crawford Lake. Well, we have a little something to give away this morning and all this week on the show. We don't want you to miss out on this. I had an amazing time emceeing an event at the Celebration of Light on Saturday. We want you to go and see this beautiful event up close and personal, but with reserved seats. So we have a pair of tickets to give away to the reserved seating at a Nook Shook Point at this year's Honda Celebration of Light. Now, these tickets are for the July 29th show. So if you think you can make it, we're going to give you a chance to win. So call us now, 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. And your chance to win is next.